to be want to share with you all from Luke 17, 11 to 21. But before I go there, I'm going to do something that I don't often do. My wife said, maybe you're going to need to preach part two, Ben. Uh, because she came came to me and said, uh, uh, good message, Ben, which I always like to hear that from my wife. Thank you, honey. Thanks for, she's a continual encourager. Said, but if the oil is mercy, later on in the evening she asked me this question, it seems like in that parable that you taught on last week out of Matthew 25, if you remember that, um, that the wise in the parable were not merciful to the foolish. So what gives? She said, well, I said, no, they weren't. And I actually think what you taught was right. I think that it is the oil of mercy. So how do we, how do we reconcile that? And I said, well, ah, ah, all right. All right. We have these conversations, by the way, oftentimes, you know. And, and, as, and by the way, can I just, boy, I, yeah, as you know, I can bunny trail, but this one's worth taking. It's, I want to say this over, young and old alike, okay, especially for, Denise grew up in an environment that she'll often share this, that she would ask questions like this that were sometimes difficult, and because it was not easily answered, uh, that she would be, it, it, it was, it was a diff, the responses were, were a bit harsh and like, why are you asking that something is wrong? Does that make sense? So something was wrong with her faith, that like she didn't have enough? That's, uh, doubting or asking questions is not a question of faith, okay? Complacency is actually more of a problem with faith than asking questions, okay? Can I just say that as an encouragement to moms and dads all around us here? But uh, this has been our relationship many times. She'll ask me questions, and it'll frustrate me, and I'll have to, we'll have to work it through. But I, I said, okay, babe, you're right. I, 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 let, me, let me take some look at this. And so um, the, one of the individuals that I leaned into heavily last week, and I closed with reading from him, his name is Brad Jerzak. Uh, he wrote a book, several books, but one of them is called A More Christ-Like God. He is friends with another guy that you hear us quote often, Brian Zahn. Those guys are buddies that work to run together. He's an author. He's a seminary lecturer. But that he's not just somebody that I've read. I've actually... Uh, met him, and then and more than one occasion I'll write him when I have questions, and he's usually really good about responding. I am convinced that when I sent him this question, he was on the tarmac somewhere in the world because he wrote me like three sentences. He doesn't normally do that. It's usually like three, pari- you know, three pages, three sentences, something like that. And he'd say, I'd say it's obvious that they didn't have mercy. Good insight. Thank you, Brad. Now tell me more. And then he encouraged me to go back to the text and look at it and to remember that it's a parable. So with that in mind, I'm going to take just about four or five minutes here and and look at this. A couple of things to footnote. When we come to places like this, one of the things that we want to do, we're listening to the words of Jesus tell a parable. So What we don't want to do is form a theology out of a parable. We want to interpret Jesus by Jesus. Easy enough to remember, right? Okay. So if I'm doing that, then I look at Luke's account in the Sermon on the Mount. He's recording several of the things that Matthew records in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In Luke 6, 
he goes through and he's sharing the Beatitudes, things like love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Then in verse 36, Jesus is recorded as saying this, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. And the word for be that Jesus uses here is the same word that John uses in John 1 when he says the word became flesh. It's a direct connection to Genesis 1, that idea that something came into being that wasn't there before. God said, let there be light, right? And so something comes into being. So that word is, is in, you know, in Greek, it's gnosis, but it means something is coming into being. Jesus says to his friends, after he's teaching the Beatitudes, he says, become mercy. Let something come into being in you because that's what your father is like. Don't judge or you'll be judged. Don't condemn or you, and you'll not be condemned. Pardon and you'll be pardoned. Give, it will be given to you. Uh, they'll pour it into your lap. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For by the standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. So, as I think about this verse in Matthew 25 and that parable, the first thing I want us to notice is that that is not an obscure parable. It really is talking, I believe, about the oil of mercy because one of the ways I've heard it taught is that it's the oil of intimacy. And unfortunately, what happens when we take it into that kind of a context is that we almost communicate this idea that Jesus gives a nod to spiritual works and pride. Does that make sense? Like, I got more than you, sorry, can't give it to you. Wait a minute, that doesn't sound gospel. No, it isn't. He doesn't give a nod. He actually says, become merciful, be merciful, like your heavenly Father. So when I go back to Matthew 25, a couple of things I want to, I want to invite us to notice. Is it possible... I'm just asking these questions, by the way. I, somewhere during the week, I told my wife, I said, honey, unfortunately, I'm laying awake in the morning because of you. <clears throat> so here we go. And I think when, I don't know, somewhere in the middle of the week, I told her that. So to, is it possible to receive mercy and acts of mercy without surrendering to mercy in my life? And I think the answer is Yes. I, I can, a person can receive mercy from me, but not actually allow it to come into their life because that requires vulnerability and repentance for it actually to have a hold in my life. So watch this as I'm thinking through this thought, okay? They've got all, they don't. So mercy is not the result of my hustle, my spiritual hustle, and it's certainly not a result of something I'm entitled to. I'm owed. Now, here's where I see this really in display. And this is, I don't know, 24, 36-hour cycle that I'm bantering with my wife about this. And I began to think about this. I'm doing some reading. I'm thinking. And then I thought, wait a second. You've, you've got these thieves on the cross. Remember that? One to the right, one to the left, right? Everybody with me? Yes? Thieves. And, and, and interesting. If we think about them as thieves, we miss something. If you look in the original language, the word that's used for thief is also the very word that is used for rebels. Now something comes into focus for me. You see, 
I, I can't imagine that they're hanging somebody on a cross for stealing somebody's purse. But rebellion against the empire? Oh, yeah. And there were zealots who would lead those, re- those, those, those rebellions. And then I think about these two thieves, one who is pleading and the other who's accusing. One who's accusing him is saying, if you're actually a rebel like me, I'm, I'm inferring into the text, I know I am, you would just get down off that cross and you would show power. Okay, so what are we seeing? We're seeing the context of individuals who often see our relationship with God and as power that's wielded. By the way, we talk a lot about that, right? Jesus comes and reveals that he inhabits power completely differently, not as something that he's lording over. You have one who's saying, show power. The other one who's pleading and saying, remember me. When I think about the idea of mercy, here's the conclusion I'm arriving at as I think about that picture of the cross. I have one who's accusing, one who's there pleading in vulnerability and weakness. You see, at its core, we don't possess mercy. It lays hold of us. Is that okay? Mercy holds me. I, I can share what holds me, but it's not, a, it's not something I possess and dispense. It's, it's his kindness. It's his mercy. So just a few thoughts to consider there. I'm not sure if I answered all the questions there, babe, but there's what you got. Um, we'll see. Maybe next time Denise will say that wasn't enough. Anyway. Uh, trust me, she doesn't wield it over me like that. She, that this was, this was I thought worth uh, coming back and, and giving some thought to. In today's text, we're going to look again at the idea of mercy, and we're looking at Luke 17, which is the uh, lectionary text for this Thanksgiving week, and it goes like this. I'm reading out of the Passion translation. On his way, that's Jesus, to Jerusalem, Jesus passed through the border region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered one village, ten men approached him, but they kept their distance, for they were lepers. They shouted to him, Mighty Lord, our wonderful Master, won't you have mercy on us and heal us? When Jesus stopped to look at them, he spoke these words, Go to be examined by the Jewish priest. They set off, and they were healed while walking along the way. One of them, a Samaritan, when he discovered that he was completely healed, turned back to find Jesus shouting out joyous praises and glorifying God. When he found Jesus, he fell down at his feet. He thanked him over and over, saying, You are the Messiah. So where then are the other nine, Jesus asked. Weren't there ten who were healed? They all refused to return to give thanks and give glory to God except you, a foreigner from Samaria. Then Jesus said to the healed man lying at his feet, Arise and go. It was your faith that brought you salvation and that made you whole. Lord, would you allow us to hear and receive what you want to speak to our hearts this morning? Amen. Father Chris Alar um, It's a priest, Catholic priest in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. 
but he tells a story about mercy that bears repetition. And he said mercy is something that, you see, oftentimes we think of mercy as the idea of, like, I owed a bunch and my debt got forgiven. And often, and the reason I think this bears repetition because oftentimes this is the, the, the primary context of gospeling that we've heard in the West. You're forgiven. But mercy is greater than forgiveness. Now, the story is of a man who was a criminal, had a long past, had a long record. He's actually on death row. He had no family. And most recently, he discovered that he had terminal cancer and about six months to live. And this man received a call from the governor who said, Congratulations. Your death sentence has been commuted. You are freed and pardoned and released from prison. Uh, So in the governor's pardon, his debt to society was removed, and yet the day that he leaves prison and he walks out the door and the door slams behind him, it's a pretty good deal, except he still had it pretty tough. There was no family there to, to greet him. He had no hope of employment because of his criminal record, and on top of that, he knew that he still had terminal cancer and about six months to live. He was forgiven, but he didn't have much hope for the future. Now, Father Chris says, imagine that same man getting a call from the governor who says, I'm giving you a formal pardon. I'm commuting your sentence. You've been freed of your debt to society. In a short while, you will be freed from prison. Of course, the man's grateful. But then the governor says, I need you to know that as you walk out the doors, there'll be a limousine there waiting for you. Inside of that limousine, there is a doctor who just discovered the cure to your terminal cancer. He's going to drive you to my mansion where I will greet you and you will be adopted into my family as one of my children forever. And I'm going to wipe your criminal slate completely clean. You will have no criminal record whatsoever and you'll have a job in my administration for life. That is mercy. Greater than forgiveness. See, no one would argue that the first example was pretty good news for him, but it left him with very little hope. Yet in the second example, we actually see what mercy is about. We see this displayed in God's relationship with his people. He sets them free from slavery, but more than that, they become the people of God, right? He brings them into a place of promise. Mercy that forgives, restores, and makes whole. Mercy that heals our misery and our suffering. So interestingly, by the way, historically the church for many, many years See, I grew up in a tradition where we referred to these as the sacraments of remembrance only. But the church has referred to this, not just the sacrifice, sacrament of forgiveness, 
but as a sacrament of reconciliation. Pointing to the fact that mercy is at work, and it's greater than just forgiveness. Again, for many of us, that's all we've ever heard about the definition of mercy, that that somehow we're forgiven, but the mercy of God, in the mercy of God, there is more. God's mercy has the power to tell another story. In fact, that's the title that I've given the message this morning, the story that mercy tells. In the text, Jesus is met by 10 men who are living the story of their life, marred and marked by their own brokenness, but most importantly, by the story of sickness that's left them forgotten, forsaken, with no hope, no future. By now, these men don't even see themselves as fully human, banished from their communities and awaiting the verdict of their life, death. Just surviving. Jesus reveals a mercy that is not only healing, but restoring. It changes the story because that is what mercy does. To those who are convinced that their life is all but over, Jesus reveals that the heartbeat of heaven is mercy. It's what we're going to celebrate in the Advent. Limitless mercy that changes everything, that tells another story. And beloved, this is what we celebrate. And I want to say this, God's mercy has a face. That's what we remember and rehearse in Advent. And his name is Jesus. And he's come to tell another story among man. And beloved, this is good news. It's the story that mercy tells. In the text, I want to try to go through this as quick as I can, but Jesus is on his way uh, to Jerusalem, takes another path into the, into the edges, the fringes, and he's met by the undesirables, the lepers. Remember, leprosy in the first century is a disease that isn't just a wasting disease, but is seen as an indictment against mankind by God. It prohibited them not just from being community, but from worshiping in the temple. And so they are exiled and forgotten and forsaken. And by Jewish law, they had to proclaim. If anybody came near, they were supposed to say, unclean, don't come near me. And this is why it gets so interesting in this text. No matter the translation, you had these ten lepers, and they begin to see Jesus, this rabbinic teacher, and maybe they've heard about him. But he's, he's, he's kind of coming on a path that most people don't come on. And their imagination, their faith is captured by something. And and they don't cry out unclean. They cry out for mercy. And, And again, every good Jew has been taught that the first words that God used of himself to describe himself, remember when Moses is in the cleft of the rock and God says, I'm not going to let you see me but I'm going to let my goodness pass, and I will declare my name. And what does God save himself? The Lord, the Lord, gracious, compassionate. That word is hesed, mercy. God says of himself, first and foremost, I am mercy, the fierce loyalty of God to his people. 
So to these forgotten outcasts, the first word coming out of their mouth, as they see him, mercy. Maybe because they recognize it in him? And, and you know, when Jesus comes into this area, the borderlands or the boundary lines, the edges, whatever you want to describe it as, he sees what everybody else wants to look past. I, that's almost a sermon by itself. He saw them. He doesn't see their suffering, their leprosy. He sees people. And then, of course, just an just interesting thing. Jesus says, go to the priest. They were supposed to go through a litany that, that would have been covered eight different days of, of cleansing before they could actually go to the priest. Jesus, Jesus just says, go. He invites them these outcasts to bypass ritual, offering, and just present themselves as cleansed without doing a thing. It's as if he's declaring the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon him to bring freedom to captives. It's like he's saying he knows that he has the power to cleanse and to transform and to change the story of men and women with the mercy of heaven. That's exactly what he's saying. That the hesed of God is not limited to rituals and rules, but the lavish, abundant, loving kindness of the Father. That's what he's saying. Then as they begin to head towards the priest, something happens. They begin to be cleansed. One of them, one of them returns. Now, I know in our text it says, Jesus says, you know, where are the other nine? And I, I just wonder... I, I think this might be the case. I, I wonder why those other nine didn't. You have a Samaritan who didn't really grow up quite as religious maybe as the other nine. And, and they grew up in a, in a mindset of ritual and the demand of the law. And so I wonder if their failure to come back isn't so much about ingratitude as much as that they didn't recognize that God could operate outside of a system of ritual. But even, you know, even I, I could point to the fact the Old Testament is filled with all kinds of those declarations, you know, that men were considered, men and women considered righteous by faith, not by anything they've done. When God says, it's not your sacrifice I want, but broken and contrite spirit before me. I mean, I could give you loads and loads of verses. But it would appear that these nine it wasn't just ingratitude. It was that their confidence was in another system. But we've got this Samaritan who's always kind of been an outsider looking into that system. And, and he's like, something's happened here. I, I, wonder, I wonder if that might be the Messiah that I've heard about. I wonder if that's mercy. I wonder, I wonder if that's God. And he runs back. And this leper who's been told, keep your distance, falls at the feet of Jesus. He does the unthinkable. No ritual, no sacrifice, no rules, no priest consecration. He responds to mercy with gratitude. His conclusion. It's the only response I can give 
to mercy at work in my life. Martin Luther once said, the true nature of worship is the tenth leper turned back. Worship intended is always intended to help us see God at work in our lives and in the world. That's, that's what Martin Luther said. So when we recognize mercy, it's no longer about assessing what I've done, not done, not about what I think I'm entitled to, but uh, oh my goodness, wait. The measureless mercy and loving kindness of God, you crown me with that kind of loving kindness? Oh my goodness! And all we can do is to give thanks. And Jesus' response, fascinating. This Samaritan has fallen at his feet because of what he has done for him. That's good and proper. Jesus does not. Now, in some of my traditions, that I've, you know, I have this sort of, uh, what do they call a mutt puppy spiritual background? A spiritual mutt background. <laughs> Okay, in some of my spiritual traditions and background, um, it was almost like you needed to prove how sorry you were to God. You needed to cry enough. You needed to grovel enough. You needed to feel bad long enough. I even had to internalize that inside of myself. I can't. I can't go pray. I feel horrible. I got to go feel horrible for a while. Jesus has this man at his feet, and it's like, wait, yeah. Let, Stay there for a minute. No, actually, no groveling required. And he says, rise up. And the word that's used for rise up means this. Rise from among the dead. Death was what he knew. Jesus says, look, here it is. Rise up. And and Jesus is inviting him to stand up, look him in the eye, because mercy tells another story, because mercy is about healing misery and restoring flourishing life. That's the gospel. I've come that you would have life. You'll not be called forsaken and forgotten. Delighted, belong to. That, That, beloved, is the gospel. Mercy tells another story. One thing I want us to notice that in that invitation to rise up is the result of this leper's gratitude, faith and gratitude. N.T. Wright makes this statement. Faith and gratitude are actually keys to living in the mercy of God. This is N.T. Wright's statement. The rhythm of faith and gratitude simply is what being a Christian is in the first century and the 21st century. So a few thoughts I want to close with. As I look at the text, first one, the face of divine mercy is Jesus. Now, I began by quoting from a Catholic priest. I've come to the place that I'm actually kind of grateful and thankful for parts of the church that have helped to Give us a visual prompts to remind us of the beauty of Jesus. You know, I, I grew up in a Reformed tradition where we're like, oh, that's idolatry. Actually, 
I mean, there is such a thing as idolatry. Any image, in our ideas, bad ideas of God, those are, those are idols. Um, but when we begin to be fascinated, it's like, oh, my goodness. Oh, yes. That's who you are. And guess what? He still walks in the borderlands, in the edges, revealing mercy that heals misery and suffering. I don't know how. This is, you guys have heard me say this. I pray the Jesus prayer almost every day, probably every day. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy. And often I'm thinking, last couple of days, I'm thinking about leveled buildings. Lord, have mercy. You still walk in the borderlands. I don't know how, but I believe you. Reveal your mercy that heals suffering and misery. And Jesus, you're the face of divine mercy. You're worth gazing upon again and again and again. I think that's a great statement. The face of divine mercy is Jesus. In my misery and in the misery of the world around me, the cry for mercy is sometimes the most appropriate thing that I can give. God, I don't know what else to say. But reveal your mercy, please. Reveal divine mercy. As we're coming into this Advent season that begins next week in the church calendar, by the way, is when we actually begin the new year, is that reminder, oh, Lord, capture me again. God became man. And then if I take the words of Jesus seriously, become mercy. So as I cry out, Lord, have mercy, I want to hear his whisper to me, become mercy. So may I just say this as a word of exhortation? In the name of Jesus, never underestimate the enormousness of small kindnesses to your neighbor to your brother, to your sister. Be merciful. And while we're on the topic, be merciful as your Heavenly Father is merciful. Become mercy. I'm sitting with a brother a couple of weeks ago. I said, bro, you need to be merciful to yourself. God is not dangling some secret cord that says, ah, now you have, now I feel like you really get it, how, how badly you messed up. I will give you another chance. Wait, that's actually not how mercy works, right? Lord, give me faith to believe mercy is enough for me. To heal misery, suffering. So how, what, what do I do with all that? A couple of just a couple of last words of encouragement. Lord, grant me grace to recognize the activity of mercy and love in my life. His love, his mercy. And when it's touching me from the lives of others. And Lord, would I respond 
with honest humility and gratitude. And then, oh, beloved, in the name of Jesus, could we hear his invitation rise up to a different kind of life? This sort of, again, I, I gave my spiritual mutt background a nod, but, you know, so often we've viewed this idea of, of, the, of the kingdom of God as something that's distant and uh, delayed. And so, thank God I'm forgiven, but I'm, you know, I'm enduring and getting through. The, the mercy of God is capable of touching my life now, here, so I can rise up to a different life now, a life of communion with him now. In the name of Jesus, rise up. Limitless mercy changes everything. It tells another story. And, beloved, this is what we celebrate, God's mercy. And it has a face. His name is Jesus, and he's come to tell that story in our life. That's good news. Amen? Lord, tell your story in our life. I want to invite us, as we come to close this morning, um, Let's pray this prayer together in closing, and then we're going to come to the table, the table of reconciliation uh, together. If you're there on the call this morning, we're so grateful to have everyone gathered together in this way. And I just invite you, if you have something there that you can take communion with, if you would, grab a hold of that. But let's, everybody, if you guys would stand, let's pray this prayer together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love without exception. And you desire to bring freedom in all its forms. Help me to accept the freedom you offer and to be someone who extends that same freedom to others. May our faith community be a place of welcome and acceptance where your good news is shared and celebrated. Amen and amen. Lord, as we come now to this, your table, by your invitation, the table of reconciliation, we confess we've missed the mark. Oh, Jesus, we've missed it. We've sinned against you in thought, in word, in deed. By what we've done, by what we've left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbors, ourselves, and we are truly sorry, and we humbly repent and ask for the sake of of you, Jesus Christ, that you'd forgive us and cleanse us 